turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. That's our very special guest today, William Butler Yeats, the Nobel Prize-winning Irish poet. He's reading his poem, The Second Coming, which captures our collective anxiety during these polarized times. I'm Robert Pease. And, okay, sure, Rob, I'm Emily Corsetti, but there's a slight problem here, because our special guest today is not W.B. Yeats. Instead, it's documentary filmmaker Brianna Nickdiarmida, producer of the award-winning documentary 1916 Irish Rebellion, which covers the history of Ireland during Yeats's lifetime. In 1904, poet William Butler Yeats and writer Lady Gregory forged their part of this new Irish world. Okay, fair enough. Yeats may have passed away in 1939, but it is amazing how this poem speaks to us now, what was written a hundred years ago, during extreme polarization and another pandemic. Plus, when Brianna speaks of Yeats, it's like he's still here, maybe through one of his seances. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Yeah, I think when Yeats wrote The Second Coming, in, in, uh, he began it in 1919, it was published in 1920 for the first time and then collected later. Things were falling apart. Interestingly enough, that period in November, we were in the middle in Ireland, of course, of a different pandemic, the infamous Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, which killed more people in Europe than the First World War. There's no doubt that that was there as one of the personal causes, I suppose, if you like, of this incredible anxiety, this apocalyptic anxiety that he expresses so well and so wonderfully in that poem. His father, who was living in New York at the time, almost died during this period in November. You do have a point that Yeats and this poem are still very much with us. And the range of modern day references to The Second Coming are incredibly varied, such as the HBO series The Sopranos. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed a nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. And this more recent adaptation of the poem in a Japanese anime soundtrack. Join us today on The Purple Principle as we discuss the creative context of one of the most analyzed reference and quoted poems in the English language, The Second Coming, as it turns 100 years old this month. And to do that, we'll go back to the turn of the previous century, to the Ireland of W.B. Yeats, with filmmaker and professor of film, Brianna Nickdiarmida of Notre Dame University. We started off by asking her about W.B. Yeats' role as a director of the Abbey Theatre during the Irish cultural revival of the early 1900s. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The Irish cultural revolution, or the... Uh... Irish culture of Renaissance was hugely important. The whole culture of Renaissance, it had many different arms. If you look at culture and nationalism throughout Europe at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, what marked a nation? First, its language. Second, its culture. And part of the culture was a literature and a theatre, a national theatre. This happened in France, it happened in Germany, it happened throughout Europe. And in Ireland, culture and nationalism felt that this was the way that they would lay down some sort of legitimacy for an independent state also. So 
without this cultural nationalism, there would have been really no basis, if you like, for a political independence movement. So all these things came together. And Yeats, in 1904, founded the Abbey Theatre, which was to become the National Theatre of Ireland. So what Yeats was trying to do was to provide an antidote, an alternative to the sort of the stage Irishry that was going on in England. If you had Irish characters on stage in England, there were these cartoon characters, basically, drunken paddies or leprechaun type figures. What Yeats was trying to do in the National Theatre, along with Lady Gregory, was to define Irishness in a different way, was to give it back its dignity, was to call on early Irish culture and early Irish literature, and if you like, repackage that put old wine into new bottles. But what Yeats had was he had this incredible ability to make words live. And we see that, of course, in his famous poem, The Second Coming. It sounds like Yeats was almost concerned that he had created a monster in promoting the cultural revival that did eventually lead to the rebellion in Ireland. Yeah, I suppose what we have to remember is in the context of Ireland in the late 19th century and early 20th century, The English Empire, the British Empire, was the greatest empire in the world. It was the empire in which the sun never set. And Ireland within it was its first colony and was destined then to be its last colony. But it was also the first place that actually hit back at the empire in a way that began to make it crumble at its centre. And that blow against the British Empire happened in Dublin in 1916 at Easter. And even though it failed militarily, it went on thereafter to become what was a moral victory, what again woke people out of their stupor. So it was very interesting. It was a famously called a triumph of failure. And it's a peculiar thing in the Irish psyche that these men went out, there were poets and women indeed, small group of men and women, many of them poets, teachers. Now, yes, obviously he wasn't one of those, but of course the theatre would have been a hugely important part of the background noise, if you like. And of course, Morgan, whom Yeats was famously in love with, was a strong force there. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. So, basically, culture was hugely important in the rise of, of Irish nationalism. But Irish nationalism, I think when we think of nationalism today, it has certain pejorative connotations. I think when you look at a situation like Ireland, a small country like Ireland, which was under the rule of the British Empire, nationalism was, in those days was a progressive force. It was a force against empire, if you like. So, and I think all of the progressive movements of the time, the suffragette movement, feminism, nascent feminism, early feminism, socialism, workers' rights, cultural politics, all of these coalesced in Ireland around what was a greater this was a greater nationalist endeavour. Yes, but we also spoke with the great Irish poet Paul Muldoon in our last episode, which was part one on Yeats and the Second Coming. He mentioned there were more specific references to the Bolshevik Revolution, removed in later drafts, but not replaced by specific references to Ireland. So how is that aspect of the poem interpreted in Ireland? Interestingly enough, that period in November, we were in the middle in Ireland, of course, of a different pandemic, the infamous Spanish flu of 1918-1919, which killed more people in Europe than the First World War. 
And it's interesting because it's something that's almost erased from our history. You know, we hear about the First World War. We hear about all these things. We very rarely hear about the pandemic of the Spanish flu. Uh, and of course, it brings it back today. We're living through our new pandemic. So, of course, I think that that gives Yeats' poem an even deeper resonance for us. But it was a time of great uncertainty. And his father, who was living in New York at the time, almost died during this period of, in November. But so Yeats was very worried about his father. He himself didn't get the flu, but his wife, Georgie, who was pregnant with their first child, did. She was extremely ill with the flu. And again, this was, uh, she, she recovered and she had a baby the following February. But during this period when we began to write that, there was those personal conditions were there and they were fairly apocalyptic. Also, of course, in terms of the revolution in Ireland, it was in the middle of the revolutionary period. The rebellion of 1916 had happened. That blood sacrifice, if you like, had managed to get a grip on the imagination of the people. So you had all this upheaval going on when Yeats began to write. And again, that very month that he began to write this poem, what became known as the War of Independence, started the Black and Tan War. It was just after, of course, 1918, the end of the First World War, an absolute horrorscape where you had millions of, of, of young men dead in trenches, dead in ditches. Uh, you had upheaval all over the world, particularly in the British Empire that was beginning to come apart at the seams. You had the Bolshevik Revolution. And that was something, again, that Yeats really, really was taken aback by. And he foretold only horror and totalitarianism and murder. So I think all of those things were playing on his mind when he wrote this poem. But I think what gives this poem its incredible importance, its incredible strength, its enduring vitality, is the fact that he didn't put in anything specific. It speaks to 1919, it speaks to 1939, it speaks to 1969, it speaks to 2016. When you had Brexit, you had Trump elected in the US, you had all sorts of things happening in Europe in that year, to 2020, the year of the pandemic, uh, when things are in flux again. So I think every time that we are in flux, because of the incredibly powerful nature and the oratorical power of Yeats's poem, it speaks to us. You know, and those, those, those lines, you know, uh, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. You know, that can speak to any period. That can speak to any, any sense of apocalyptic dread that we have as human beings. So I think because Yeats was not specific, but managed to give voice to this existential dread that we have during periods of flux, during periods of time, where we fear the apocalypse, we can still use his words. Those words ring so truly. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. That was our featured guest today, Brianna Nickdiermida, professor of film and Irish studies at Notre Dame, speaking to us from Tipperary on the Ireland of a century ago when Yeats wrote and published The Second Coming. There's no doubt in saying that The Second Coming speaks to a wide variety of people across the past 100 years, including dozens of high-level leaders, such as the South African president, Thabo Mbeki, reciting the poem in a 2003 reference 
to the violence in Rwanda, Chechnya, and Afghanistan. Or U.S. Vice President Al Gore in a 1994 commencement speech at Harvard University. There has also been a wide variety of writers, musicians, and actors who have performed the Second Coming in a great variety of ways. For example, British playwright Harold Pinter. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. British-Irish folk rock band, The Waterboys. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. American indie music duo, Slater Kinney. American country music icon, Chris Christopherson. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. Canadian singer-songwriter, Joni Mitchell. We spoke with Brianna Nick Diarmida about the remarkable endurance of the poem, as well as the human weaknesses of this hugely influential poet. W.B. Yeats was ambivalent about many things, including the more revolutionary aspects of Irish nationalism and the prospects for stable democracy without mob rule. He had grave concerns about communist totalitarianism arising from the Bolshevik Revolution, and in his highly polarized time, he later had a brief flirtation with fascism during the 1930s. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So I think it's kind of interesting today is that we don't have someone who's come out and written a poem that has anything like the power that Yeats's words, written all those years ago, still have to convey that sense of foreboding that we feel with global instability, with whatever's going on, you know, in, in, in American politics or in European politics, the era of Brexit, the era of Trump or post-Trump. That sense of foreboding, how, how do we express that? How do we find words to express that ourselves? And I think it's quite interesting that we're not coming up with original ways, but we're recycling Yeats's words uh, because they have this incredible power. And again, he has this, even though his own personal beliefs would have been quite autocratic, he, he toyed with fascism himself and before pulling right back from it. And yet his poetry can be used in a very progressive way. If you think that someone's feeling the sense of foreboding, and the fear that the centre cannot hold. The very fact that you're saying this actually can act as a break on it. You know, it's almost like a warning. It's when people quote that line from Yeats, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. We're almost saying it as a prayer, as a secular prayer. Let this not happen. I was reading this, the Financial Times at the weekend. And what am I reading? The Second Coming, invoked in at least two or three articles. So I think it's quite extraordinary that these words of Yeats still live with us, still resonate with us, and we still use them to speak to our deepest fears as human beings, and yet also to our deepest hopes that this will not happen, this apocalypse will not happen, if we can cling, if we can hold to ourselves, our own centre. So Brianna, I'm wondering if the fact that this poem is quoted so much is that today, with all of our technology and social media, maybe there's a degradation of people's ability to absorb the power of new poetry? Yeah, but I also think it speaks to, I mean, I think the power of that poem and its longevity and the fact that it's, you know, it, it's even more quoted than ever before. I think it speaks to the need for 
ritual and liturgy. It's almost liturgical. You know, what works is liturgy. The fact that these things have been, are known to us, we repeat them time and time and time again. That gives them a certain power. You know, it's like people go to these sacred spaces because they have, they're numinous, they're imprinted with energy, they're imprinted with people going to these places and doing the same things. So that's why these words, that we've gone to these words time and time again. So they act almost as a sort of secular prayer, I think. So if we can jump ahead a few years after Ireland gains a measure of self-rule and after Yeats has won the Nobel Prize, he becomes a senator in the Irish Parliament. And he's a little ambivalent his whole life about politics, and there he is in Parliament. How comfortable was he in that role? The Irish Senate is the second house of parliament in Ireland, okay? So it's not elected by the people, and it's not the primary legislature. So in a sense, it was ideal for Yeats, who was a public figure, but a very private individual also. He was a, this, and again, this, te- this continuous tension between the smiling public man, as he called himself in one poem, uh, and this private, intensely private, mystical, poetical figure uh, that was at his, at his own centre, at his own heart. By being part of the Senate, by, by being a senator, he was able to speak to this public persona. And in fact, he spoke very practically when he talked about education, in fact, almost at odds with this mystic poet figure. This was something he was speaking about, you know, classrooms needed to be big, they needed to be ventilated, you know, you needed to have so many teachers in there, all these very practical issues. He was against church power, he railed against church and state. So in the Senate, his voice was very much uh, one of standing up for the rights of artistic freedom. So he spoke very much to that against censorship, against any heavy hand of state and church, and that would be the Catholic Church, which of course was the church of the vast majority of the Irish people at the time. So Yeats was was vehemently against this and spoke very, very coherently and very strongly against the mob. So what if the mob were that of church and state, the mob howling at the door? He became disillusioned, however, with politics. And again, you know, his own personal politics, he was, he, uh, at the very end, 1936, he actually wrote marching songs for what was to be a failed attempt at an Irish fascist organisation that were called the Blue Shirts. And they really didn't take off in Ireland at all. They would just have no support whatsoever. And uh, so it was a mild flirtation with fascism, uh, which you could say, you know, could very well besmirch his um, uh, his reputation as a poet. But yet, in his poetry, his words still, as you say, can be used uh, for very progressive causes. And of course, this is something that's very germane today, isn't this idea, like, do we throw out the baby with the bathwater if an artist has particular views that we don't agree with or that, is, that certainly would not be acceptable today? Does that mean that nothing they have achieved is worthwhile? And I think if you like, if we look at someone like Yeats, that those words about, you know, the centre cannot hold, Miranda Keys, Lundstrom, they can act very much as, not as invitations to either anarchy or totalitarianism or the birth of the beast, but the opposite, to the break, to a return to the human centre, you know, to the human spirit. And perhaps make us think again and give us solace. Yes, well, let's hope so. So when we were speaking with Paul Muldoon, He mentioned the line from W.H. Auden's Elegy to Yeats that, quote, Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. We wondered if you could comment on that. What do you think he meant? (laughs) Of course, Auden was an Englishman. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, that might have something to do with his comment about uh, Mad Ireland. I suppose at the heart, Yeats constantly does go back to the matter of Ireland. You know, this the great hatred little room maimed us from the start. Again, much quoted lines from Yeats, particularly during the Troubles. And of course, because Ireland has been in a state of flux, has been in a state of political tension for, one, one used to say, 800 years of oppression. So I think Ireland was hugely important as, a, as the subject matter of Yeats's poetry, as something to which he came back to time and again, something that he was incredibly ambivalent about. I think he said once that his poetry was a continual quarrel and a continual apology about Ireland and on behalf of Ireland. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Those were our two very special guests today. W.B. Yeats reading The Second Coming that still speaks to our great angst 100 years after publication. And Brianna Nick Diarmida concurrent professor of film and Irish studies at Notre Dame, giving us the context in which W.B. Yeats lived and wrote in Ireland, from his time promoting cultural nationalism in the early 1900s to his disillusioned later years when World War II descended onto Europe. So don't know about you, Emily, but as you've been learning more about Yeats and the Second Coming and Irish history, I'm thinking about a few of our guests this season who've spoken on similar issues in our not very United States. Exactly. When I hear the line, the worst are full of passion intensity, I think about what J. Van Bavel, the neuroscientist, said about doomsday cults and how people act in them, and how they become even more passionate after the world doesn't end. And there's been a couple studies where they have looked at what happens when certain cults predict the end of the world. You know, what happens the day that the, that prediction doesn't come true? What you might expect is that cult members should update their beliefs, but that's not what happens. In fact, uh, a couple studies that have gone into these cults and looked at these cult members have found, if anything, the opposite happens. They immediately start to look for rationalizations. And so there's a kernel of that psychology in human nature that applies to all kinds of identities we have, whether we're talking about politics and people you know, find something terrible about their favorite party or politician and they can't let go of it. And when I hear the line, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, I'm thinking about what Dr. Robert Elliott Smith said about the polarizing effects of social media. Facebook really does broadcast hate speech. There's no doubt about it. They do. And hey, you know, I don't think any of the uh, major media providers are actually deeply evil. I don't think that's true. I do think that uh, the goals that we've programmed them with, like programming an AI, the goals we've programmed these corporations with may not be compatible with having an effective society. And I know we've played it before, but with respect to those most quoted lines in The Second Coming, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, I think that Charles Whelan of Unite America pretty perfectly echoes that in our time. One of the scary things going on here is you've got a lot of different forces at work Anyone who's been watching TV more than 15 years knows that's new. The rise of television news where you pick your ideology, the rise of social media where not only are you hearing the echo chamber, but think about something like gerrymandering. Now big data allows us to gerrymander better than we used to, which means more safe seats, which means the primaries matter more. 
They're more expensive races. Who do you get the money from? The people who are the most extreme. Every single force is pushing us apart. Please stay tuned for a complete and masterful reading of The Second Coming by the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Paul Muldoon at the end of our episode today. In our previous episode, number 14, Paul Muldoon helped us understand the enduring magic in Yeats's poetry. We hope you'll have a listen to that as well. And coming up soon on The Purple Principle, we'll turn to a more contemporary discussion of the center not holding in U.S. politics and society. Our special guest will be the historian and columnist Jeffrey Cabaservice of the Niskanen Center. He's the author of Rule and Ruin on the Decline of Moderation in the Republican Party, with, maybe not so surprisingly, chapter titles based upon the Second Coming. And life became more difficult for them after Ronald Reagan became elected in 1980, although Reagan himself was enough of a pragmatist that he understood there was a need for moderates in the GOP Big Ten coalition. But really, the problems became worse with Newt Gingrich in the 1994 election. And with every passing year, uh, we're still in the 2000s, and moderates have really been marginalized in the party at this point. Please join us for that episode. Share us on social media and visit our website, purpleprinciple.com, for our blog, episode notes, and other information. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Emily Crisetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, Janice Murphy, marketing and outreach, Emily Holloway and Johnny Dowling, research and fact-checking. Our original music by Ryan Adair Rooney will play us out today below Paul Muldoon's poignant reading of The Second Coming, which turns 100 years young this month. The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast it's our come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born.